And I actually, um, I have a second computer so I can see the chat as well. So okay, great. Um, if you have any respond and ask in real time. Um, so I'm Steve Cassidy. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the third year pulmonary critical care fellows. Um, today I wanted to harken back to a simpler time before uh, COVID-19 and uh, discuss a, a topic that I've become very interested in, uh, which is chronic thrombolic pulmonary hypertension. And like I said, if you have any questions at any time, uh, feel free to just, uh, just cut in or you can, uh, you can use the chat box and I'll be able to see that. So I have, uh, I have no disclosures. So the, uh, you know, the CME-friendly goals that I have for this talk are really to, uh, to discuss a number of aspects, pathophysiology, epidemiology, how we diagnose CTAP. I wanted to discuss uh, some, some of the, the imaging uh, characteristics and the imaging modalities that are actually used in CTEF, which has been an interest uh, of mine in terms of imaging of pH. Uh, I wanted to review the, uh, the role of surgical interventions for CTEF and then discuss medical therapies for patients who are either inoperable or who do not improve significantly with surgery. But what my true aims are beyond the, uh, beyond the objectives is uh, to, to at least mention that CTF is likely a staggeringly underdiagnosed disease. And for that reason, I think that uh, pulmonologists and, and cardiologists should be first line in terms of recognition of this disease. Um, it is a treatable and potentially curable disease. Um, unlike any other uh, form of pulmonary hypertension, it, uh, it can actually be cured. And uh, with early and effective treatment, it can, uh, it can be treated uh, very effectively with marked symptomatic and mortality improvement. Um, and also that you know, pulmonologists and cardiologists can and should play uh, a first-line role in its diagnosis and be considering that on the differential probably more often than we do. So um, just to start off with a case intro, which is a, a, a real patient, um, this is a 43-year-old woman who presents with chronic dyspnea on exertion. Uh, one year before, she was flying from Paris to Rome. She had chest pain and syncope at that time while she was on board the aircraft, um, but recovered and was relatively well, was able to uh, resume with uh, the majority of her trip. Um, after a normal chest x-ray and EKG done by her primary doctor, uh, she subsequently has an abnormal uh, TTE, which is notable for an elevation in RVSP. So, uh, her symptoms uh, worsened shortly after that, and she was admitted to a, a local community hospital with heart failure. Um, so during that time, she underwent a right heart catheterization, and that revealed that she had precapillary pulmonary hypertension. Uh, they did a VQ at that time, but the VQ was intermediate in terms of her risk of pulmonary embolism. Um, so these are her. Uh, these are two of her um, two slides of her CT angiography. When, uh, about the time when she presented. Um, so just sort of you know, in, in terms of casual observation, you can already tell that um, some of the classic markers of both, uh, some of the classic suggestive markers of both pH and, uh, and right heart dysfunction are there. So her, uh, her mean PA is, uh, is noticeably wider than her aorta um, when taken at kind of the same axis level. And her right ventricle just off the bat looks a, a little bit larger than it should and uh, potentially larger than her left ventricle. Um, shortly after she presented uh, to the University of Maryland, uh, she underwent a additional right heart catheterization which showed these values. So as you can, uh, can probably tell, the uh, the pulmonary pressures and right ventricular pressures are markedly 
elevated, and she has a, uh, a thermodilution cardiac index of only 1.3. So normal range for that should be anywhere from 2.5 to 4. So um, at, this, at this point in time, this point in presentation, she already has marked cardiac dysfunction. And keeping that in uh, mind, she also went at the same time for pulmonary angiography. Uh, so on, uh, on her, uh, I guess her, her anatomical right here, uh, this is her pulmonary angiography. And uh, on the other side is a, is a normal for comparison. And you can see that there is a, uh, uh, there's a significant decrease in the number of uh, pulmonary arteries that stretch out to the periphery to get the, if I could get the pointer to work, um, looks like I cannot, but you can see that uh, as, as you go towards this right lower lobar pulmonary artery, uh, you can see that there is a significant stenosis and tightening the actual lumen of that vessel, which is one of the, uh, one of the marker signs of chronic thromboembolic disease. So keeping that in mind, just to introduce what we're talking about. So uh, CTEF is easy because the name describes largely what it is. So it's a, it's a form of pulmonary hypertension that's due to chronic thromboembolic disease of the pulmonary arteries. Uh, and it gets its own individual pulmonary hypertension group in the WHO classification. So this constitutes group four pulmonary hypertension. So while still a rare disease, it's become increasingly recognized um, and there is growing awareness of the, uh, of the disease amongst uh, pulmonary and uh, cardiology doctors. And it appears to be induced largely by acute pulmonary embolism, but it's not always clearly associated, which is one of the issues that makes diagnosis relatively difficult. So in terms of epidemiology, uh, it's always been somewhat difficult because the disease is felt to be largely underdiagnosed. And the reasons for this are that it has, like a lot of pulmonary diseases, it has relatively nonspecific symptoms, dyspnea, chest pain, um, sometimes little else. The rates of prior pulmonary embolism history, uh, while, while most patients do tend to have this, are actually variable. And some patients present without any history of pulmonary thromboembolism at all. One of the other things that probably is more common outside of the academic realm is that, is that VQ scans are ordered relatively infrequently. Um, so um, this, uh, going back a little bit, this line, uh, set of lines from the uh, paper by Clock et al. Um, probably puts it better than I could. Um, it says, despite recent therapeutic progress, um, CTEF remains underdiagnosed for a multitude of reasons, uh, clinical barriers and informed imaging community, non-uniformity in diagnostics despite international guidelines and delay in referral to expert centers. And again, that probably applies much more uh, to, the, to the community at large outside of our academic center, but it is something to think about um, given that we're a tertiary coronary care center and receive so many referrals from the community. So speaking a little bit more about epidemiology, once I get past this slide. Um, so there's a wide range of actual rates of disease noted after acute symptomatic pulmonary embolism. Um, so there's been ranges reported from only 0.4% to 6.2% um, with a pulled estimate from um, some of the French research group uh, at 3.4%. There was a Swiss study that actually found at, uh, at two years out from acute PE, that there was only a rate of 0.79%, which is kind of on the low end 
Um, but the overall rates probably are within two to four percent in terms of development of, uh, of CTEF after an acute pulmonary embolism. Um, so if we consider that there's a 0.1% incidence rate of acute pulmonary embolism, that probably means around the potential for 10 to 15,000 cases annually in the United States. So in terms of worldwide epidemiology, there are some also some notable differences. So um, the incidence in the United States is around three to five per 100,000, about half are women, and most, 85%, have a PE history. Uh, Europe is similar, 75% with a PE history with similar incidence. Um, Japan, which has a significant amount of CTEF research, um, is notable for a number of, uh, uh, number of surveys through the Tokyo Ministry of Health that actually show that uh, a significant the fewer amount of their patients have a history of acute PE on 15 to 32%, and there's a significantly larger number of, uh, of women at 80% that actually have the disease in, in, uh, in Japan. Um, so what exactly is the disease in terms of its pathophysiology? So what you have is you have, a, you have an embolic material, and this embolic material basically, instead of undergoing normal processes of fibrinolysis, which break things down, uh, you have organization of that material. And that organization results ultimately in remodeling the vasculature. Um, you have defective angiogenesis. Um, you have uh, failure of, uh, of capillaries in terms of uh, moving in and actually inducing the process of fibrinolysis. Uh, you have endothelial dysfunction, that's a result of both the thrombus and the surrounding inflammation. Um, and it's probably best described as a misguided vascular remodeling process because the organized thromboembolic material really serves as a, uh, as a larger trigger for uh, what in many patients ends up being a much wider process of uh, pulmonary arterial artery modeling. So this is a picture from um, uh, Gerard Simino, who was, uh, who was a major figure in uh, CTEF and pulmonary hypertension at large. And you can see some of the patho pathologic features that have actually been described with this disease. So um, in the, uh, the top right-hand corner, you can see uh, that there is a, uh, it's a slide of a distal distal thrombosis of a pulmonary artery, and you can see that in this case, it's become recanalized, and there are various, uh, various imaging sequelae of the different ways that things become recanalized that we'll, uh, we'll go through. Um, in order, basically responding to the increases in uh, pulmonary vascular resistance, you have muscularization of the arterioles, so you can have uh, lesions that look basically for all intents and purposes, like pulmonary arterial hypertension, like the plexiform lesions that we often associate with that. Um, what they've also noticed is that there, is, there seems to be some pathological overlap with diseases like PCH and with PBOD, where the veins and the, uh, the veins and the capillaries themselves become more fibrotic and more muscularized and actually become involved in later stages of disease. Um, so the pulmonary arteries that are affected uh, usually are partially or totally occluded, um, but with this increase in resistance, you get distal arterial vasculopathy. So basically, arteries that may not have been directly affected by thromboembolic material um, become, uh, become more muscularized and further increase the path of the resistance within the arterial bed. Um, 
And in order to make up for the fact that you have a lot of different, uh, that you have a lot of plugged and clotted uh, pulmonary arteries, the, the body basically steps up and creates collateral circulation in terms of the, uh, the bronchial, largely the bronchial circulation. And uh, we'll talk about some imaging, uh, some imaging evidence of this as well. So as I had described earlier, one of the challenges of this disease, um, you know, not only in its rarity, is that its presentation is relatively nonspecific. So 99% of the patients present with dyspnea, typically exertional dyspnea, but that's a uh, kind of a common feature of a wide variety of uh, pulmonary diseases that we see. 41% present with edema, which is considered to be a, a sign more of late stage disease um, because it's uh, that suggests um, one set of right ventricular dysfunction at that time. Um, fatigue, another nonspecific feature at 32%, and then a very small, relatively small minority present with chest pain and syncope at 15 and 14% respectively. What makes things um, even more challenging is that there's a possibility that this may represent a spectrum of disease. So there is a uh, relatively vaguely defined post-PE syndrome that occurs after acute pulmonary embolism. And it's unclear whether or not the, whether or not patients with post-PE syndrome will go on and be more likely to develop either chronic thromboembolic disease alone uh, in terms of organized thromboembolus in the pulmonary arteries, or whether or not these patients are more likely to go on and develop full-blown CTEF. Um, so in terms of the, the uh, post-PE syndrome, um, like I said, it's poorly understood and it's at this point in time still relatively vaguely defined. Um, but how it is defined thus far is that patients who have an acute PE uh, present with persistent uh, dyspnea, more than would be expected, uh, functional limitation, and reduced quality of life after they experience a pulmonary embolism. The majority of these uh, symptoms uh, actually improve by three months. More than 50% of patients post-acute PE actually report chronic dyspnea, and, and uh, a full 10 to 20% of patients report that they have a uh, New York Heart Association class three to four level of functioning uh, in terms of having um, symptoms with minimal activity uh, or uh, symptoms with uh, symptoms at rest. It's suggested that the majority of the dyspnea that occurs post-PE is, uh, is due to deconditioning, and that with uh, with getting out of the hospital and with recovery and return to a normal set of circumstances, this deconditioning that gradually becomes resolved uh, and these patients return to normal. Um, but the, the presence of this post-PE syndrome and the fact that dyspnea is relatively common after, after acute pulmonary embolism may contribute in some way to the diagnostic delay of actual CTEF. So the average diagnostic delay for this disease is a full 13 months for patients to present from the first time to their ultimate diagnosis of CTEF. Unfortunately, what this leads to is that most patients have a very poor functional status by the time that they present, class three to four. Uh, and in this uh, paper by Pepke Zaba, uh, it was mentioned that there was, at that time in 2011, patients were seeing a median of four physicians with 13 separate consultations in the form of office visits uh, before the ultimate diagnosis of CTEF. So that leads to the question of who to consider. 
And uh, some of these suggestions are a bit intuitive, but of course those presenting with symptoms that could indicate CTEF, um, which, is, uh, which is rather vague, but would be, uh, would be improved by uh, the background of further history. So those with signs who are, those with signs indicative of CTEF at the time of acute PE diagnosis, because a significant amount of patients who present with CTEF have had silent or uh, you know, unrecognized PEs prior to their uh, ultimate diagnosis. And then those with risk factors, or specific risk factors or predisposing conditions for CTEF. And we'll talk about uh, what some of those are. In the pulmonary world, uh, the, the use of PFTs and the finding of an isolated low DLCO can also be suggestive of pulmonary hypertension in general, um, but I wasn't able to find any specific literature that uh, suggested that as a, uh, as a strategy for CTEF itself. So some of these risk factors have to do with the, the uh, findings at the time of pulmonary embolism diagnosis. So there certain specific things are known to be more causative or more associated with CTEF than others. So naturally, if a patient has had previous episodes of DVT or PE, it makes it more likely. Um, the lar larger pulmonary arterial thrombi on CT angiography do appear to make it more likely. Um, at the time of acute PE, if the patient already has RV dysfunction or pH, it could suggest that history. Um, and of course, if uh, basically looking at uh, taking a close look at the CTA, that's done at the time of the PE and finding signs suggestive of CTEF, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the talk. Um, there are other certain predisposing conditions that have been found to be associated. So these are really not only tangentially related to PE or DVT. So patients with ventricular arterial shunts, um, including, um, including the uh, AV fistula or AV graft, um, can have a markedly increased risk of developing CTEF. Um, one study actually found that the, uh, with a ventricular atrial shunt or an infected pacemaker, you had an odds ratio of 76 for developing CTEF uh, versus non-thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Uh, so infected chronic lines or pacemakers uh, are thought to be associated with it. Uh, patients with history or malignancy of any kind of myel myeloproliferative disorder um, and expectedly some thrombophilic disorders, so um, antiphospholipid, high factor eight levels, and lupus anticoagulant have all been associated with a higher risk of developing this after QPE. In addition, there are some more unusual uh, predisposing conditions. So non-O blood group patients appear to be more likely to have it. A history of inflammatory bowel disease or splenectomy, which are considered uh, conditions that lead to an aberrant coagulation system, and also hypothyroidism that's treated with thyroid hormone. So exogenous exogenous levothyroxine uh, also contributes to an altered coagulation system. Um, high plasma concentrations of von Willebrand factor and factor eight in impairment in fibrinolysis, and this has been uh, this has been pretty um, pretty solidly explored as a uh, as something that leads to a higher likelihood of this disease. So how is CTEF diagnosed? So the formal diagnosis has to take place at least three months after the pulmonary embolism, largely because of that, and because it's thought there's a honeymoon period that occurs between the PE and ultimate development of CTEF, and also not to conflate it with uh, the you know, vague post-PE syndrome that also occurs. 
Um, in the absence of overt right heart failure, it's thought that a reevaluation after an QPE of about three to six months is an optimally timed reevaluation. Longer than this, uh, you're getting into diagnostic delay territory um, because physical recovery is largely expected by this point. And thrombus resolution is thought to be mostly achieved by three months. And uh, one additional, one other study actually said that 90% of thrombus resolution is expected to occur by 30 days. So in terms of the formal criteria for diagnosis, um, so a mean PA pressure of 25 or greater with a normal wedge pressure of 15 or less uh, with a mismatch, with mismatch perfusion deficits on VQ scan, um, you may or may not have specific diagnostic signs on chest imaging, uh, and this has to all take place after effective anticoagulation for three or more months. Um, so uh, some of you may be more familiar with the diagnostic criteria of pH, um, may notice that this criteria is basically conforming to the, uh, the older definition of precapillary pH, um, which uh, was kind of supplanted in 2019 by a new definition, but uh, the new definition actually doesn't apply to CTEF yet. Apparently there is consideration to do so, but for the time being, uh, this criteria still very much applies to uh, CTEF. So overall, if there is a strong clinical suspicion for CTEF, um, basically there should be, you know, the, there's been Differing thoughts about this over the years, but the current thought is that patients who have a clinical suspicion should go for echocardiography first. Um, you know, if there is a intermediate or high probability, and we'll talk about what that means, they should proceed to VQ, uh, VQ scanning. The VQ scan is, a, is considered the gold standard for rollout, and if this is negative, CTEP is rolled out. Um, but if this is abnormal, we'll talk about some of the next steps, which usually include right heart catheterization, CTA of the chest, and often pulmonary angiography. Um, so Sarah Williams uh, just asked, um, in terms of not everybody having a recognized PE beforehand, so um, you know, how, do, how do you take into account this three-month period for those patients? So the, the three-month period is really just a, uh, it's a yardstick for reassessment of acute PE that is, that is no. So if a patient comes in with an acute PE, that's considered a, uh, an optimal time for reevaluation. Um, for, uh, for patients who do not have that history, um, it's really going to be a combination of uh, clinical suspicion presentation and imaging when they, if and when they present to you. So um, it's, it's really about maintaining a high suspicion in the right patient. Um, so echocardiography at this point is generally felt to be step number one for diagnosis. And this answers kind of the binary questions of is pH present in the form of a uh, high rate ventricular systolic pressure and is right heart dysfunction present? Um, it is noted that echocardiography can miss very early disease, um, but because it's a, it's a non-invasive, relatively well understood and inexpensive test, um, it's considered to be first line. However, routine use is not recommended in all patients post-PE. Um, and this is because um, most patients will have uh, 
uh, improve their symptoms by the three-month period, um, and because it likely will, uh, because of the relative rarity of CTEF, even though it's under-recognized, this still uh, may lead to a, a phenomenon of overdiagnosis and probably uh, resource utilization that may end up being uh, too high. So this is the, uh, the main uh, question that echocardiography can answer, um, and it groups patients into low, intermediate, or high probability of having pulmonary hypertension. Um, generally, if patients undergo echo and they have low probability and improving symptoms, there's no need to go further. Uh, however, if they are in, in the intermediate category or high category where you have um, elevated TR velocity and signs of right heart dysfunction, um, then your suspicion should be very high and these patients should go forward for VQ scan. Um, one emerging tool uh, that has actually come out for patients who, either, who are either markedly symptomatic with relatively low suspicion on echo or intermediate risk patients is uh, exercise testing. And um, this, can be, uh, this can be quite useful in terms of displaying uh, ventilatory issues and increased dead space uh, in these patients and can, uh, can lead to, uh, to further diagnosis that you may have missed otherwise. So if a patient has intermediate or high probability, they've been through three months of anticoagulation, they're symptomatic, uh, and you're suspicious, you want to send these patients for a VQ scan. So VQ scan is considered the gold standard for rule out. Um, and as I mentioned, it's typically ordered if you're intermediate or high risk for the presence of pH on echo. Um, and you may want to consider it even if there's persistent, uh, for persistent dyspnea, even if there is relatively low risk for pH based on the echocardiogram. Um, a normal VQ is very effective for rolling out CTEF. So it's thought to have 90 to 100% sensitivity and 94 to 100% specificity. Um, CT, CT angiography of the chest um, is definitely improving in terms of those, uh, in terms of numbers for the detection and rollout of CTEF, um, but it hasn't quite displaced VQ scan in terms of the, uh, in, in terms of the major tool that we use for the disease. So something more, uh, more familiar to uh, presentations in this uh, group would be CT angiography of the chest or CT of the chest. So in patients who have an abnormal VQ scan and who undergo right heart catheterization and ultimately have pH, uh, CT angiography is often recommended as the next step. So what this really serves is uh, you can determine overall anatomy and really to determine the amenability to surgery in these patients. Um, We'll talk about a, a number of myriad direct and indirect signs of uh, CTEF one CTA. And like I mentioned, it is highly sensitive and specific for the detection of chronic thromboembolic disease, but it may miss subsegmental disease, uh, which may be appreciated by VQ scan. So um, as this group is likely familiar with, there's a number of uh, findings that are considered suggestive of pulmonary hypertension uh, on a CT scan. So these basically include uh, findings in the right heart. So if the right atrium is dilated, if you have right ventricular hypertrophy or uh, right uh, enlargement of the right ventricular lumen, pericardial effusion, which is typically seen in late stage disease, um, the presence of prominent systemic collaterals, 
and classically the dilation of the main pulmonary artery, uh, which is uh, considered a, a good but somewhat imperfect determination of pH in these patients. It dovetails somewhat with uh, the research that I uh, did with um, doctors uh, um, Deepak and Hussain and Kwaku uh, uh, Mills Robertson, um, where we performed a volumetric uh, assessment of the pulmonary arteries in uh, patients who have had CTAs. Um, so this likely would be able to improve the, uh, the yield of, uh, of CTAs potentially for, uh, for ruling out patients with CTEF and other forms of pH. Um, so what we did was uh, a retrospective study. We did 40, uh, 40 patients who had confirmed pH on right heart catheterization and 40 age match controls uh, of the same, uh, the same sex. And we compared 2D measurements and 3D volumes of central pulmonary arteries. Um, for, uh, as an example there, so uh, the top one is a, uh, is a 71 year old man who had a uh, rule out of pulmonary embolism. And uh, 50, the one on the bottom is a 58 year old woman who had scleroderma associated ILD and uh, group three pulmonary hypertension. So you can see based on that, uh, that uh, there is a significant difference between the two of these patients. Um, what we found was that there was actually relatively high reliability for mean PA diameter in this, in, in this selected group. Um, with an area under the curve of 0.905, but we found that uh, total PA volume, especially in uh, severely uh, severe patients with very severe pulmonary hypertension, um, was actually uh, more sensitive with an AUC of 0.951. So it's unclear how uh, volumetry will be uh, additionally added to this paradigm, but it may end up being a, a useful tool, at least for, uh, for initial assessment. So, like I mentioned, beyond, the, uh, beyond just signs of pulmonary hypertension on CT, you have a wide variety of signs of uh, CTEF that are vascular signs. And um, we'll go through uh, some of these, but some of the things you might expect to see when, uh, when evaluating specifically the pulmonary arteries themselves, is you may see that there are filling defects that are eccentric and wall-adherent, which are unlike the, uh, the filling defects of an acute pulmonary embolism. In rare cases, these may calcify. Um, vessels that are occluded become, uh, they become tapered and truncated. You may see a complete occlusion where vessels simply stop. Um, the intima may be irregular in contour. Um, you may see uh, signs of uh, filling defects like webs and bands, which are basically uh, sequelae of organized uh, thromboembolic material, uh, stenosis, post-stenotic dilatation, and uh, vascular tortuosity. So hopefully, um, hopefully with the resolution of the Zoom conference, um, you'll be able to, uh, to see these reasonably well, um, but just in terms of a, a, a comparison to kind of keep in your minds, this is a um, an axial and a coronal view of a 37-year-old uh, man who was ruled out for PE, um, just to get the idea of a, a normal, normal appearance of pulmonary arteries in your head. Um, you can see that the, uh, the, pulmonary, the main pulmonary artery there is not wider than the aorta. Um, you see kind of normal, ta uh, normal tapering, and you can see that as it progresses out downward towards the, uh, the right lower lobe, that it's very, uh, it's very neat and uh, the branches are very um, are very clean. Um, so, 
just to take a look at some of the things that you might expect to see. So um, these are intraluminal filling defects that you can see on patients with, uh, with CTEF. This is a more dramatic case and chosen for its drama, but, uh, but it gives you a really good idea of what some of these irregularities look like. Um, so you can see that the intima, uh, the intima there is uh, basically irregularly contoured. Um, and it can actually look in some ways like arterial thickening. Um, so the first, the, uh, first image there is uh, an 80 year old woman with bilateral thrombi. Um, she actually has signs of a uh, post-stenotic dilatation, which is the white arrowheads you see there. Um, on the other side is a 86 year old woman who actually has calcification of a, uh, of a thrombus in her right pulmonary artery. And the calcifications are seen in a minority of patients um, but they do, they are uh, suggestive of thromboembolic disease when they're seen in that degree in the, uh, the pulmonary artery vessel wall. Um, another finding that is uh, often reported are bands. And um, what these are, these are linear structures that extend between vessel walls and they represent organized thrombo uh, thrombotic material that's been left behind. Usually bands are seen in uh, either lobar or segmental arteries. They're rarely seen in the main pulmonary arteries. And groups of bands are termed webs. Um, so what this is, um, you can see in, in two planes, uh, the presence of a band that, that uh, stretches from one end of a, of a vessel to another. Um, and uh, on one side, on, uh, you can see with the white arrows that it's basically anchored to the vessel wall. And this is, uh, again, suggestive of uh, organized thromboembolic material. Um, aneurysmal dilatation can also occur. Um, this is an 80-year-old woman who had a history of PE. Um, you can see that there is a, um, with the asterisk there, there's a presence of, uh, of dilatation in that pulmonary artery as well. Um, and then if you, uh, with a closer look at the same artery with that black arrowhead, you can see the presence of the band stretching from one uh, end of the vessel to the next. Um, we mentioned that in response to uh, occlusion of the vessels in CTEF, you may see uh, collateral circulation start uh, to become more prominent. And uh, what this, uh, what what you see here is, uh, this is uh, the same 80-year-old woman as in the last slide um, with uh, enlargement of the right bronchial artery, which is the black arrowhead, which we normally wouldn't expect to see so prominently. Um, and then on the, uh, the second photo is the uh, enlargement of the proximal right bronchial artery. So the bronchial artery usually shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be more than a couple millimeters wide. And this is a, uh, a suggestion of that becoming more involved in um, perfusion of the lungs as well as potentially in rare cases, gas exchange. Um, and keeping that second photo in your head just for comparison, um, this is a patient that was part of our uh, that was part of our study just going back who was a control patient. Um, this is a MIPS projection of uh, that patient where you can see the size of their bronchial artery for comparison, um, which is significantly uh, significantly smaller and uh, is the you know, considered the normal uh, the normal width. Now, in normal cases, the bronchial arteries only conduct about one to two percent of cardiac output, but uh, in CTEF they can become sufficiently hypertrophied that they can actually conduct up to 30% of systemic blood flow. Um, and then maybe most, uh, most interesting in terms of uh, 
a pulmonary crowd is the parenchymal findings that you can expect to see in CTIF. So mosaic attenuation is, uh, is frequently common and that uh, typically, most typically is due to a, a geographical variation in lung perfusion. So you have some areas that are more occluded than others and you expect to see higher degree of signal in those than others. Um, but interestingly, air trapping can also be present in this disease. And it's theorized that uh, if you have proximally stenosed or occluded vessels, that ultimately, uh, because of the decrease in blood flow to airways, you can have a result in airway dysfunction. Uh, and then uh, finally, in rare cases, you can actually expect to see that because of this occlusion and the, the, uh, the loss of perfusion in the bronchial walls, um, you may actually see airway dilatation adjacent to stenosed or obstructed arteries, which is seen in a, uh, in a minority of cases of CTEF. Um, a, uh, a tool that's becoming uh, more studied and uh, has been used within, uh, within our own system as well is that of the dual energy CT. And some, um, some of you may have seen this CT projection on, a, uh, on, any, on potentially a recent CTA of the chest. So what this does is, uh, and I'll try to explain to the best of my non-radiology abilities, but what it does is it uses two separate X-ray spectra so that you can actually remove a substance where you know how it, uh, how it reacts to an X-ray. Um, so you can actually re uh, remove iodine or focus specifically on, uh, on iodine contrast. And what it does is it produces these color-coded maps of lung perfusion. Um, it's an emerging technique for, the, uh, for aiding the detection of CTEF. Um, basically because it's a surrogate marker of lung perfusion and uh, it can help delineate causes of mosaic attenuation because if you see that there is an area with decreased uh, signal and that's reflected by decreased signal on dual energy CT in that region, uh, then it's likely going to be suggestive of a, of a loss of perfusion in that area. So what you can see here, this is, this is a normal de, uh, dual energy CT projection where you can see that there's, um, that the map shows good perfusion basically uh, throughout the lungs. And then um, this is an abnormal, this is a 45-year-old patient with pulmonary hypertension. You can see uh, right off the bat that the PA and the right atrium are dilated. Um, there is some eccentric thrombus in the left pulmonary artery, um, but you can see that there are areas of black um, instead of that, uh, instead of the orange map that suggests a, uh, a loss of perfusion in those areas. So uh, one of the final major tools um, that's used in CTEF is the use of pulmonary angiography. So um, this can be especially useful because this can be done concordantly with right heart catheterization and is still considered at this point uh, the gold standard for the uh, assessment, for the in-detail assessment of pulmonary vasculature. Um, there are recent studies that suggest for, pure, for purposes of pure detection that it's outperformed by CT angiography of the chest but it does allow a very detailed anatomical understanding of the pulmonary arteries. And there's research and interest in use of angiography because of uh, use of balloon pulmonary angioplasty, um, which is a, uh, a treatment modality that we'll talk about. Um, so how do we go about treating this disease? So the principles of treatment um, are fairly linear, actually. Um, and we'll talk about each of these in turn. But the cornerstones are essentially lifelong anticoagulation, um, assessment by an expert team, and then the determination of whether or not a patient is a surgical candidate. 
Uh, I think that CTEF should be thought of primarily as a surgical disease um, and with medical therapy reserved for those who either can't, go, can't undergo surgery or don't improve sufficiently with surgery. So anticoagulation is indicated in all patients with CTEF to prevent recurrence of thromboembolism and in situ thrombosis. And the traditional choice is warfarin. Um, there's been a suggestion that DOACs are safe and reliable, but they may actually have higher rates of recurrent uh, VTE. And these are studies that both came out this year, so that kind of has yet to be uh, put to rest. And it's not clear how long. Um, there's no trials that compare short-term to indefinite therapy, but it's thought that the recurrence rate is going to be sufficiently lower uh, if lifelong anticoagulation is pursued. So the next step after anticoagulation is multidisciplinary assessment. And um, this has been recommended to include a specialist in pH, uh, a cardiothoracic surgeon trained in, uh, in PTE, or a pulmonary thromboartherectomy, an interventionist who's trained in angiography and uh, balloon pulmonary angioplasty, and then a radiologist with training or, in, uh, or expertise in uh, CTEF. Um, so in terms of operative management, which should be considered the cornerstone of this disease, uh, what this is is pulmonary thromboendarterectomy, which is referred to as PTE or, uh, or PEA in the, uh, in the European literature, which is a little bit less comfortable for us. And this is the only potential curative option. Um, and it should be offered to all eligible patients. But unfortunately, 40% of patients overall are considered inoperable. So pulmonary thromboendarterectomy is, uh, is a complex surgery. It's a median sternotomy approach. Um, and it's, it's a meticulous dissection of the entire pulmonary vascular tree that's done under bypass. It's techni uh, technically challenging, but has a reasonable uh, in-hospital mortality rate of 2.2%. And that's across the board. That's not specific to, um, to Maryland or any specific center. Um, what you see here is this is the, uh, the, USC, the UCSD criteria um, for determining the, um, the extent of thromboembolic disease into the hey, Steve, uh, mm -hmm. there are a couple of questions. I don't know if you want to answer them now or at the end. Um, it looks like um, I'll try to hurry things up and I can answer them at the end. Okay. Um, so you can see here that, it, uh, that at level one, you have your main right left pulmonary arteries, but you go deeper into the pulmonary arteries in terms of removal of organized thromboembolic material, and it becomes significantly more complex to the point of level four, which is subsegmental and is considered uh, extremely complex and uh, difficult to achieve in most cases. So in terms of timing of when to perform this surgery, so there's concern that use of medical therapy for CTEF actually delays definitive surgical therapy. Um, the delays in surgery actually uh, double in pretreated patients, and bridging therapy with medication actually predicted a worsened outcome with a uh, hazard ratio of 2.6. Um, there's a number of... Uh, there's a number of criteria to consider as to which patients would be better in terms of their outcomes after PTE. Patients who have a known history of PE, who have no right heart failure, no comorbidities, a reasonable functional class, disease primarily in the lower lobes, relatively low PVR, and disease that appears to be consistent across different imaging modalities uh, all tend to be better in terms of their risk profile. Patients who don't have a known history of PE, who have some degree of right heart failure or a poor functional class, 
or who have a uh, disease that doesn't appear consistent across imaging modalities. For example, CTA that doesn't display as much, uh, as much clot material as you would expect to see given right heart catheterization findings. Those patients tend to do more poorly after this surgery and make for poorer candidates. The outcomes of this surgery are relatively good. Um, the 2011 cohort of over 300 patients showed that there's 90% survival at five years, and this is compared to 70% survival at three years without treatment. Um, untreated, the uh, patients who have an EPA of greater than 40 have a 30% five-year survival rate. Um, so this surgery shows marked decreases in mean pulmonary pressure, improvements in cardiac index and pulmonary vascular resistance, but unfortunately up to 30% still had residual persistent pH after the surgery was performed. Um, you can see demonstrated that uh, the six minute walk distance after the surgery increased markedly in this cohort. So for patients who can't undergo surgery, a full 40%, um, these patients either have inaccessible lesions, they have pulmonary pressures that are far out of proportion um, to their clot burden or significant comorbidities, uh, the surgical outcomes are sometimes less robust than desired. And for that reason, uh, medical management is, uh, is part, of the, uh, part of the treatment modality here. So there's three major trials that have studied medical management in CTEF. Um, benefit, CHEST-1, and MERIT-1, which looked at bocentin, rheosiguat, and masatentin, um, and of which the rheosiguat trial, which has become more, this medication has become more known in terms of uh, being a medication for CTEF patients, and they showed a fairly, a fairly significant six-minute walk distance change of 46 meters. Currently, it's recommended that in patients who have a functional class of, uh, of, of two to three, um, for inoperable CTEF that rheosiguat is considered one of the first-line agents. Um, this is a guanylate cyclase stimulant, so basically it acts to increase CG, cyclic GMP and cause pulmonary vasodilation. Um, because it acts on similar pathways as PDE5 inhibitors, it isn't given alongside sildenafil or tadalafil. Of course, there are, all, there are alternatives. Uh, ERAs, like I mentioned, had been explored um, as had sildenafil. For inoperable patients who have a severely, uh, a severely decreased functional class, um, prostanoid agents can be considered. Um, basically, the uh, experience is derived mostly from uh, the pulmonary arterial hypertension experience, um, but it has been looked at in trials as a bridge therapy to, uh, to thromboendarterectomy as an inpatient. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about was a uh, was an, a, an emerging modality that is of, of, of high interest, um, balloon pulmonary uh, angioplasty. Um, so this is a it's a promising alternative in patients who cannot undergo the significant thromboendarterectomy surgery. It's actually associated with uh, with higher improvements in exercise tolerance and better hemodynamic improvement than Rio Siguat. Um, but it is worth noting that it is subject to the complications of angioplasty. Um, and there's an injury risk of anywhere from 0.3 to 5.6%. Um, and this can involve reperfusion pulmonary injury, pulmonary edema, or a potentially a pulmonary arterial rupture. The mortality rate may actually not be superior, um, but the benefit over medical therapy alone may be significant. Um, this set of photos actually shows a uh, 
uh, pulmonary angiography and a uh, intraventricular ultrasound image of uh, BPA in action. Um, so basically there is a, uh, in, in picture A, you can see that there's uh, relatively poor filling of that pulmonary arterial tree. And there's an intravascular web, which may be difficult to see uh, through the zoom. Um, but with intraventricular ultrasound, uh, there's, almost, there's almost no flow seen within this artery. And with balloon pulmonary angiography, an inflation of the balloon may actually force the embolic material to one side of the artery and they show a uh, and marked improvement in terms of the uh, actual luminal flow that they see on both angiography and uh, the intraventricular ultrasound. Um, and the effects of BPA um, do appear to be uh, do appear to be quite solid in terms of functional class as well as hemodynamics. So um, this this is from the same study, and it shows that uh, patients actually can improve a full functional class after BPA is performed. Um, so I think that uh, I'm running just a few minutes over time. Just to return to our case, so um, our patient was uh, was ultimately seen in the PH clinic. Ultimately underwent PTE after four months, uh, within four months of referral. Um, there, the, she did have residual pulmonary hypertension post-op, um, as well as some degree of residual RV dysfunction, but has improving hypoxia. Um, and was started additionally on Rio-Siguat after her surgery. It is worth noting that studies have shown that patients with CTEF uh, who undergo the surgery and have residual pH, uh, it actually doesn't appear to negatively affect their mortality uh, compared to uh, patients who have not undergone, compared to patients who do not have uh, residual pulmonary hypertension. Um, so this is my, um, this is my long list of references. Um, I wanted to thank these people who would help me out through the year, Dr. Deepak, Dr. Romani, Dr. Hussain. I wanted to thank uh, Kwaku Mills Robertson who worked with me on the, uh, the CT study that I had mentioned, um, my co-fellows and uh, our program directors and faculty. And um, I can uh, start answering the backlog of questions that I, uh, 